0: Talk Talk Radio.
1: Have good news for you today. Well, the good news came out last night, but at Tandon is not going to be OMB director. Um, we're going to talk about that in just a second. We have uh, the Dr. Seuss controversy that I'll weigh in on. Um, I mean, it really is a testament to how effective that right-wing propaganda machine is that this basically became the number one story in the country. I'll talk about that. I'll talk about the $15 minimum wage. I got Chris Cuomo dodging when it comes to what his brother did. So a lot of stuff to get to today. Um, let's kick it off with Neera Tanden. So we had a little bit of a roller coaster ride for our emotions the other day. Um, early in the day, it was reported that Senator Murkowski – was meeting with Neera Tandon, and it looked like there was a possibility that Murkowski would support Neera Tandon. But then a few hours later, out of nowhere, we got some other news. Now, first I want to show you, this is a clip from MSNBC. This is the people on Morning Joe. Um, they're talking about their perception of what makes sense in the negotiation for Neera Tandon for OMB director. Let's watch this, and then we'll come back, and I'll give you the big news.
2: Burkowski is keeping near Tandon's hopes, meanwhile, of becoming the director of the Office of Management and Management Budget Alive for now. Senator Burkowski, widely seen as the swing vote that could make or break Tandon's nomination. Yesterday, she told reporters that she and Tandon met face So, Joe, Senator Murkowski and Nair Tandon had a meeting. Murkowski says she's undecided. Remember, Tandon has right. uh, sent tweets over the years about Lisa Murkowski, uh, not just Lisa Murkowski, but other votes that she would need to be confirmed. Uh, what's your take on this? Is she is Murkowski still a holdout, really? Do you think there's a chance she might vote for Tandon despite everything? I mean, this is an easy one. I mean, just, if you just look at politics, and if you want to remove your attendant and mean tweets and leave some I can just tell you this is an easy one. At least in my day, people would be lining up, like, around the White House going, okay, yeah, I'll vote for her. Um, And by the way, the the hurricanes really messed up some small businesses in northwest Florida, and I'm worried about that, but we can talk about that later. But let's talk about near Danden. Now, why is this so – I mean, this is so easy for her. Like a mean tweet? Oh, you said a mean tweet about me? Okay, great. Can I get something for Alaska? Yep. Can I get something to help my state? Can I get something that the people of Alaska need for a vote? Uh, for uh, a woman who's qualified, but this a mean tweet. Yeah, this is like Gene Robinson. This is easy. I mean, I listen, I understand. I understand tweets upset a lot of people.
1: <laughs> That's what they keep doing in D.C. is taking the conversation about Nira and making it all about her mean tweets. And, um, I think that's kind of bullshit. I mean, don't get me wrong. A lot of the people who are opposed to her are opposed to her because of her mean tweets. But there are real substantive policy reasons to be opposed to Neera Tanden, and we've we've gone over them on this show a million times. Like, for example, the fact that she thought we should bomb Libya, steal its oil, and use the proceeds to pay down the U.S. deficit. So she's a warmonger, imperialist, and a deficit hawk, and we got that all within the confines of one story. There's, of course, the fact that she has repeatedly pushed to cut Social Security. There's the fact that she's been swimming in corruption. In fact, that was the whole point of the Center for American Progress. It was to be the shadow government for a potential Clinton administration. And um, that's why they were taking money from Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Israel. The idea was, hey, when Hillary gets in power, this will be her government, and they've already paid their preemptive bribes, so they get what they want up front. Uh, There's a classic story of Bloomberg, how... A Center for American Progress took a lot of money from Bloomberg, and then they axed a report that spoke negatively of his, you know, anti-Muslim policies in the city. So, I mean, those are the real reasons to oppose her, not because she was mean to Ted Cruz or Mitch McConnell on Twitter. In fact, I support being mean to Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell on Twitter. I support being mean to anybody you really want to be mean to on Twitter. I mean, that's like half of the reason for Twitter existing. So they keep making it about the mean tweets. It's not about the mean tweets. Okay, next. Um, what ended up happening was, see, this is really interesting. Murkowski said to the press, I never spoke to the White House about this. I spoke to Nira. I never told the White House how I was going to vote. The White House came out and said, oh, Murkowski's not going to vote for Nira Tandon, so we're, we're pulling her as uh, the OMB director. So hold on now. That makes no sense. Murkowski's like, I'm not sure if I'm going to vote for her. I never said, told the White House how I'd vote. And the White House is saying, oh, Murkowski's not going to vote for her, so we're going to pull her. I wonder what happened. I wonder what really happened behind closed doors. See, now here's the thing. There's a weird dynamic at play here, too, because if Murkowski had said, yes, I'm going to vote for Nera Tandon, you know what would happen then? Bernie Sanders would be the deciding vote to determine whether or not Nera Tandon becomes OMB director. In a situation like that, Bernie Sanders has tremendous leverage. And so what Bernie could have done in that situation, which now is not happening, is Bernie could have said, yeah, I'll support Nira. If you put the $15 minimum wage into the $1.9 trillion coronavirus bill, that's the only way. The only way I'll support her is if you put the $15 minimum wage into the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill. Anything else, you could take a hike. Now, would Bernie actually do that in that scenario? I don't know. But that would have been the right thing to do in that scenario. But now we're never going to know because Neera Tanden uh, for OMB director is dead. But on that alone, everybody should be celebrating. Everybody should be celebrating that. Listen, I don't know who they're going to put up to replace her, but whoever it is cannot be worse than Neera Tanden for the policy goals of the left. I repeat, whoever they put up next, there's no way that they're, they're going to be worse than Neera Tanden for the policy goals of the left. Neera Tandon's whole existence for an extended period of time was to smear and besmirch and put down Bernie Sanders and the entire movement and everything that they stood for, including Medicare for All and free college and a living wage. Um, So I don't think that – I think she would have been horrible for this position. And I really do find her comments on Social Security disqualifying to be OMB director. So – I'm really happy about this. The thing I don't understand and never will understand is how the hell we got to a place where there was a bunch of nominally left-wing groups supporting Neera Tanden. How the fuck did that happen? Simply because you all have partisan brainworms and the Republicans lined up against her, so then you lined up for her? But she's not our ally. She doesn't agree with us on the issues. Why the fuck would you do it? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. So I was totally inexcusable in the first place, but Thank God uh, she will not be OMB director. I don't really care who they put up because they can't be worse than Nira. Um, but I would love to know the real backstory as to what happened. What happened? Why did – was there some sort of phone call that we don't know that made Biden pull the Nira Tanden, um pick? I, I don't know. Did Bernie talk to Biden and say, even if you get Murkowski, I'm not going to vote for her? I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know what happened, but I would love to know what happened. Um, But the bad news, unfortunately, to end this otherwise positive segment is that the Biden team already came out and said, now we're going to pick her for a position in the administration that doesn't require approval. That's it. So unfortunately, the corporate Democrats are going to cuddle up to other corporate Democrats, and there's really nothing we we can do about that. And that's a damn shame because she's pretty much as bad as it gets. She is not our ally by any stretch of the imagination, never was, never will be. There's the other story about how she punched Fahd Shakir because Fahd Shakir dared to ask Hillary Clinton a question about her support for the Iraq war. I mean, this is a terrible person through and through with a horrendous ideology. So I don't want her anywhere near any position of power. Um, Unfortunately, she will be in some position of power, but at least not OMB director. Okay. All right, next.
0: Next, next, next,
1: next, next. I felt my blood pressure rise as I read this next tweet, which you're about to see. This is from David Schuster. He reports the following. Manchin Ally says Senator has received no pressure or lobbying from White House to vote for the COVID-19 bill with the minimum wage attached. Good for Mansion. Malfeasance at the White House, no calls, horse trading, or effort to find out what would get Manchin on board. Good grief, beyond absurd. I want you to contrast this with the news we learned about Neera Tanden. Now, thankfully, with Neera Tanden, it didn't work out. They couldn't scrap together enough votes. To get her to be OMB director. She'll be somewhere else in the, in the administration, but she won't be OMB director. But the reports were early on that they were, quote, fighting like hell for Nera Tandon. In fact, that's what uh, Ronald Klain said, you know, top administration official. They were having conversations with people behind the scenes, asking, hey, what can we do to get you to support her? What would you like? Um, Lisa Murkowski was the one that it really all came down to. Now, there are contradictory reports. Ryan Grimm says he actually didn't lift a finger for Neera Tandon, but at least there were some whispers publicly and in the media that actually they were trying to slap together the numbers that they need for Neera Tandon. Assuming that's true for a second, and again, there's contradictory reporting. Some people say they pushed for Neera. Some people say they didn't really do it, even though they pretended they did it. Either way, there was more noise around trying to get Neera Tandon approved than there was trying to get the $15 minimum wage. That says everything I need to know about where these people lie politically. That says everything I need to know. The Senate parliamentarian, which is an unelected bureaucratic position, that person came out and said, Um, yeah, I I don't think we can put the fifteen dollar minimum wage in the COVID relief bill, and I don't think we could do it through reconciliation. Now, Here's how much power the Senate parliamentarian has. Dick, bupkis, nothing, nada, no power, none at all. And, in fact, what the Republicans did when the Senate parliamentarian said, oh, you can't do the Bush tax cuts mostly for the rich um, through reconciliation. You know what they did? They immediately fired the parliamentarian and put somebody in there who said, sure, you can do it. Uh, In... 1996, the welfare reform bill, which gutted welfare, was a horrendous piece of legislation. Um, They passed that through reconciliation. You can get almost whatever you want through reconciliation. You just have to dedicate yourself to doing it. Now, the fact of the matter is Kamala Harris is the one who has the power to say, we disagree, and we're going to put it in there. But every indication since the parliamentarian said, oh, you can't put the $15 minimum wage in the bill, Every indication is that Kamala and Biden and all these powerful people in D.C. are going, oh, my, oh God, oh, my God, I it so bad to put the $15 minimum wage in, but I can't, account. can what do you want me to say? It's not me, it's the parliamentarian, I'm, getting, I'm getting, being given an excuse by the parliamentarian. That person has no power. It's an advisory opinion. It's like if somebody, you know, Biden calls a family member to ask advice on something and they give advice and he could either listen or not listen, but the choice is on him. The choice is on Kamala Harris and Joe Biden to determine whether or not to vote on it. So if they don't put it in the bill, ladies and gentlemen, they do not want it in the bill. They do not believe in a $15 minimum wage. By the way, this is the only time you're actually going to have the ability to get it. Because understand something. Normally, through what's called a regular order, you would need 60 votes. Because the Republicans just declare, we are filibustering. Therefore, you guys need 60 votes. So we don't even have to get up there and speak. There is, it's not the old school filibuster where we have to actually speak. They just declare, we are filibustering. And then you need 60 votes to get it through. We don't have 60 votes for the minimum wage increase. So the only way you're going to get it through is with budget reconciliation. Why not put it through a must-pass $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, which polls at 77%. Even 60% of Republicans support this COVID relief bill. By the way, don't get me started. I've seen polls all over the place, but... Poll in 2019, 67% favorability for a $15 minimum wage. The lowest one I've seen is 59% favorability. These numbers matter. These things matter. If you don't put it in the bill, you don't want it in the bill, which means you don't support a $15 minimum wage. And what's so fucking gross about this is that they're liars. They're liars. They're liars. At least some of the Republicans are upfront with the fact that they're not in favor of higher wages for working people. At least they'll basically tell you. The Democrats run on raising the minimum wage, and then they get, I might, I might get the
2: parliamentarian, I the, the
1: parliamentarian, this person has no power that I can overrule in an instant, well, I can't because the person I can't overrule, the person I can't overrule, I'm going to pretend like I can't overrule, what do you want me to tell you? They didn't even try to have a conversation with Manchin or Cinema. If they really wanted this, you know what Joe Biden would do? He would call up Joe Manchin, he'd have his favorability numbers in front of them. Now, I don't know Mansion's favorability numbers off the top of my head, so I'm just making this number up. But it'd be something along the lines of, hey, Joe, it's Joe. I need you to understand something. My approval rating just came in at 62%. You know what that is? That's a honeymoon period, son. I'm an incredibly popular president at the moment. I can't miss it at the moment, son. Oh, look at this. I see your approval rating is 33%. Hmm, I almost double your approval rating. What would you think if I went and did some rallies in West Virginia, starting next week, for a primary opponent against you? Would you like that? What if I used all of the resources of the Democratic Party and all of the money and call all my donors and tell my donors, don't give to Joe Manchin, he's blacklisted, we're gonna support a primary opponent of Joe Manchin, an opponent to his left. Would you like that, Joe? Oh, you wouldn't like that. You wouldn't want me to use my incredible popularity to crush you and end your career permanently. Well, there is a way we can avoid that. Here's how we avoid that. If you vote for this $15 minimum wage, we're going to put it in the $1.9 trillion bill. If you vote for the $15 minimum wage, you're going to be my best friend. I'm going to use my popularity to go to your state and campaign for you, and I'll tell my donors to donate to you. And if any primary challenger runs against you, I'll support you. Hey, listen, son, I could be your best friend or I could be your worst enemy. It's up to you, but I don't think you want this fight now. Now, a new poll just came out of West Virginia. 63% of West Virginians support a $15 minimum wage. 63%. So don't give me this bullshit about, I'm a West Virginia Democrat. That's why I can't do it, because people in West Virginia don't agree with these crazy left-wing policies. 63% do agree with it. Do agree with it. So you're either going to represent your corporate donors or you're going to represent the people. I'm here to make you represent the people. If you do represent the corporate donors, you're done, son. You're done. That's what, that's what a real politician who cares about this would do. Or you don't even have to go that far. You could start by saying, Joe, what do you want me to give you in order for you to vote for the $15 minimum wage? You tell me. You tell me. You want me to allocate extra infrastructure money for West Virginia? Done. I got it. Whatever you need, I'll hook you up if you vote for this. You could go that way or you could go, the, the, you go positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, but there needs to be something. They didn't do anything. They didn't lift a finger. They didn't talk to Manchin. They didn't talk to Cinema. Kamala backed off it immediately. Joe Biden backed off it immediately because they don't want it. So now we have to make them do it. And unfortunately, far too often, they just brush us all off, man. They just brush us all off. But we need the noise to be overwhelming. In fact, credit to, you know, TYT decided to jump into this and do a hashtag Save Us Kamala and get people to put a lot of pressure on Kamala to say, you're the only one that can save us and keep it in the bill, so you've got to keep it in the bill. We should be in favor of any and all attempts and efforts to put pressure to make them do the right thing on this. But the reporting is terrifying, the reporting is disgusting, and the reporting is that they just don't care about this issue. Well, the final part of this conversation is this. It's like they're trying to lose in 2022 and 2024. You can't campaign on something overwhelmingly positive. People elect you in large part because of these popular things that you campaigned on, and then you just don't do it. There are fucking consequences to that, son. There are consequences to that. And, you know, you reap what you sow. You made your bed, now you're going to sleep in it. Or you could do the right thing and be overwhelmingly popular and stay in power. But, see, their catch-22 is they want to appease their corporate donors as well and represent their corporate donors as well, and the corporate donors don't want the $15 minimum wage. So that's what's really going on. Our politics are so corrupt that even the party that's supposed to nominally be on the left and nominally be for the workers, they abandon you instantly. So, disgusting. They better change course. If they don't, then they can't bitch when they lose to the monsters that are the elected Republicans. Okay. All right, now we're going to, we will weigh in on the Dr. Seuss thing. Dr. Seuss beach. So there's this big scandal going on right now that involves Dr. Seuss. Uh, If you've been anywhere near a right-wing outlet in the past day, you've been smacked in the face with this, and there's been a ton of bricks dropped on your head over it. Um, Newsmax, One American News Network, Fox News, even some other nominally more moderate outlets are talking about this. I'm going to come back to the Dr. Seuss thing in a minute. Um, I mean, this is just, this is like Culture War 101 trash, garbage. But there's another policy to discuss here. So we have Kevin McCarthy one of the leading Republicans, he's going to give a speech um, on the floor. The thing to take away here is how casually and nonchalantly they lie. These people lie. So he's talking about H.R. 1. H.R. 1 is um, the Democratic bill. I'm going to, again, I'll come back and talk about what's, what's in the bill, but take note of how he describes it and take note about the line he has about Dr. Seuss.
0: Everyone has a personal story of your friend, your family, your neighbor receiving a ballot they shouldn't have. Every one of those stories erodes the trust in election integrity. Yet, under H.R. 1, future voters could be dead or illegal immigrants or maybe even registered two or three times. I guess Democrats just don't care as long as they get reelected. Third, H.R. 1 rewrites election law. And imposes a one-size-fits-all partisan rules from Washington. Under the Constitution, we generally defer to states and counties to run elections. Democrats want to change that. First, they outlawed Dr. Seuss, and now they want to tell us what to say. They want to remove reasonable debates about early voting, registration, and no-excuse mail-in balloting from the states and counties, and resolve them with a single federal solution decided by the whims of Washington.
1: First, they outlawed Dr. Seuss, and then they want to tell you what to say. So the Dr. Seuss story, the company, the Dr. Seuss company, I think it's called Dr. Seuss Enterprises, they said, hey, of our, there's at least 39 Dr. Seuss books, probably over 40 Dr. Seuss books. They say, Hey, we found six of them that are a little questionable because they're incredibly racially insensitive, like portraying some black characters as like monkeys or gorillas. And there's some that talks about slanted eyes for Asian people and just, you know, things here and there that are outdated historically that we look at now with our 2021 sensibilities and we go, hmm, that's a little uncomfortable. That's it. But the Dr. Seuss Enterprises company, on their own volition, said, these six, six books of the thirty nine forty whatever books, we're, these are the ones we're going to, you know, we're just going to slowly roll these back. I don't know if their long-term plan is to keep them off the shelf forever or if they're – it's maybe change a handful of lines in the books and re-release them. But it's a company deciding on their own we want to make some tweaks and some changes. Now, you're allowed to disagree with that, you know, and I get it when people say, I don't, like, nobody was even really asking for this, so why are you – like, why are you doing this? I get it. I get all those criticisms. He said they outlawed Dr. Seuss books or whatever. Guys, the Democrats in Washington, D.C. had absolutely nothing to do with the Dr. Seuss thing. Not even close. Not a single Democrat proposed a single bill about Dr. Seuss or, you know, racially insensitive stuff in books. Nobody in D.C. said or did anything involving this. It was that company. Now, by the way, this, what these guys tell us all the time is that the free market and capitalism... Companies can make their own decisions, and the government needs to butt out. So this is something that they should be celebrating. This is something that they should like. It's a company that decided on their own, we want to represent all, all communities better, so we're going to not do certain things. We're going to roll some stuff back. But no, they're throwing a tantrum, and he's misleading you by pretending like the Democrats had something to do with, with that. The other one is they're talking about how the company that makes Mr. Potato Head now changed it to Potato Head because for gender reasons or whatever. Now, is that goofy and silly? Yeah, I think it's goofy and silly. Again, nobody was asking for that. There's no reason to really do that. But, like, the Republicans in Washington, D.C. are pretending as if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Joe Biden signed an executive order or some shit or proposed a piece of legislation that was like, from now on, there's no more Mr. Potato Head. It's just Potato Head. So, guys, here's the point. Why do they do this? Because all they have is the culture war which get back to the legislation that he was actually talking about there. Every single thing he said about H.R. 1 was total bullshit, total bullshit. I challenge you right now, go to Google, type in H.R. 1, read all the provisions of H.R. 1, it's a long bill, there's a lot of stuff in there, but H.R. 1 has stuff like automatic voter registration, which is totally common sense and increases voting rights for people in this country and, make, and I think other developed countries do that. It's, of course, what we should have. You shouldn't have to jump through hoops to, to exercise your right to vote. That flies, in the hoop to get, that flies in the face of it being a right. If you have to, like, get permits and shit, permit is from, derived from the word permission, which is not a right. That would be the opposite of a right. So, yes, of course you should have automatic voter registration. That's obvious. But he acts like that's, oh, one-size-fits-all Washington, D.C. policy. So he lies about the actual policy, and he he distracts with culture war garbage. By the way, you know what else is in H.R. 1? Anti-corruption measures. Limiting money in politics. So he's flat out pro-corruption. He's on the side of corruption. He's, He's on the side of being against voting rights and making it harder for people to vote. That's why this clip is fascinating, because you get everything about modern Republican politics in one clip. What you see is outright lies and misinformation and disinformation, policy in question, H.R. 1. Again, don't take my word for it. You can go read the bill. Look at all the provisions. There's anti corruption stuff in there, there's ethics stuff in there, and there's automatic vote, voter registration and other voting rights things in there. So he lies about the actual policy and diverts to the culture war shit where he lies and misleads you about the culture war stuff, too. Like Democrats outlawed doctors. The company that makes Dr. Seuss was like, we're going to make some minor changes. And you're blaming Democrats in D.C. who had nothing to do with it? Nothing to do with it. See, I'm telling you, man, see, this is that bullshit. There was a great tweet I saw yesterday. There's one Republican politician who was doing the same tap dance, right? Oops, they canceled Dr. Seuss, and they canceled Mr. Potato Head. This is life in Biden's America. You know who was saying that? A Republican politician who voted against giving people COVID relief. This person is against the $2,000 checks. This person was against the $600 checks. And they're trying to get you all riled up over some culture war bullshit. Hey, I'm cool with you starving and not having enough money to live and maybe also get COVID and die while you're at it. Totally fine with that. Not going to do anything. Not going to lift a finger to improve your life on that front. But Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss, Republican Politics 101, divert, obfuscate with culture war shit where they are even misleading about that while they try to take your attention away from the economic war and the class war that's being waged on you from the donor class against working people. Totally unacceptable. But you see the dirty tricks here clear as day. Okay. Andrew Cuomo is in quite a bit of trouble. It keeps getting worse and worse for the governor of New York. Um, Now, of course, his brother, Chris Cuomo, is a CNN anchor. Here's what happened the other day when another scandal broke involving Andrew Cuomo. Look at how Chris Cuomo handled it.
2: Before we start tonight, uh, let me say something that I'm sure is very obvious to you who watch my show. And thank you for that. You're straight with me. I'll be straight with you. Obviously, I'm aware of what's going on with my brother. And obviously, I cannot cover it because he is my brother. Now, of course, CNN has to cover it. They have covered it extensively, and they will continue to do so. I have always cared very deeply about these issues and profoundly So, I just wanted to tell you that there's a lot of news going on that matters also. So, let's get after that.
1: I can't cover it because he's my brother. Really? Because whenever it was something positive, you covered it. In fact, you threw softballs down the center of the plate for him for like a year. Chris Cuomo would have Andrew Cuomo on... They talk about, oh my God, you're so great at fighting the coronavirus. You're a leader in this country and people love you. And here's a thousand articles where people are saying they're quomosexuals because you can speak in full sentences at these press conferences, even though behind the scenes you're making terrible decisions, but oh, we love you. And there were, there were moments, one of them was holding like a giant Q-tip thing and yucking it up and laughing. They talk about Hey, what about our Sunday dinners that we have over here? You know, when they bring the meatballs and the pasta sauce, hey, bring the pasta sauce, hey. They were were having fun and having like a family reunion all the time on CNN, where it was nothing but fawning positive coverage and praise. So when it's positive stuff, You can cover it, and you can have him on and pat him on the back and tell him he's doing a wonderful job. But when it's negative stuff, I can't, listen, what can I do? It's my brother. I can't talk about this. I can't cover it because he's my brother. I have a conflict of interest. That's right. That's right. You have a conflict of interest. You also had a conflict of interest when you were yucking it up with him and talking about Sunday dinners and making it seem like he was doing a wonderful job fighting COVID when he wasn't. God, it's selective bullshit. This is CNN. This is CNN. This is what's supposed to be the number one name in news. No, this is biased corporate Democrat propaganda. I'm sorry, it's true, but everybody out there who's a Republican who thinks like, yeah, you go get him, Kyle, with this rant. Fox News is the same shit for Republicans. Are you kidding me? That's the Donald Trump propaganda network. That's the establishment Republican Party network. MSNBC does propaganda for the corporate Democrats. CNN does propaganda for the corporate Democrats and sometimes the entire establishment. And Fox News does propaganda for the Republicans. So nobody's telling you the truth, but they're all incredibly biased and they're all covering for power, one faction or another of people who are in power. So what you need to understand is how gross this is and how this shows how broken the media is. I don't know how anybody can let him get away with this. When he was giving him positive coverage all the time, you didn't say, I can't have him on or talk to him because he's my brother, then when it was positive, they should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. Now, by the way, I will say this. It is gross to me that when we were talking about Andrew Cuomo making decisions that kill grandma and grandpa, when we were talking about Andrew Cuomo lying about the number of deaths from nursing homes, that was a big scandal, but you didn't have other liberal elites throw him under the bus. They sort of shut up and looked the other way. But now the story that's actually making them throw him under the bus is what? sexual harassment stuff, hashtag MeToo stuff. So as of right now, as of the time that this is being recorded, there are three women who say he inappropriately touched me or inappropriately made a move at me and said really sketchy things or, or whatever. This is the thing that's leading New York lawmakers to strip him of his extra pandemic powers. This is the thing that's making other elected Democrats throw him under the bus. Guys, the thing that should have been the last straw was the out-and-out lies about COVID deaths and the decision to put old people back in nursing homes when they were COVID positive, which led to the absolute death and devastation and destruction and and a drastic, sharp increase in the number of COVID deaths in New York. That should have been the last straw. Why is that not something you throw? You absolutely should throw them under the bus for that, but no, they sort of gave that a semi-pass, and then now with the sexual harassment stuff, they're like, ah, that's it. So what? Killing grandma is not as big of a crime as Me Too sexual harassment stuff? I just it just shows you the priorities are so broken in the media system, and, and forget the media, and among Democratic elites, the priorities are just shattered. Now, by the way, I'm not trying to downplay what happened with the sexual harassment stuff and the Me Too stuff. That stuff is absolutely valid. But let's be serious. We have no uniform standard for this stuff, because... Donald Trump was accused of Me Too-style stuff, and he brushed it off and kept moving forward. Um, Joe Biden was accused of a bunch of Me Too stuff and brushed it off and moved forward. And now Andrew Cuomo is being accused of similar stuff. And, you know, is he going to brush it off and move forward? Probably. But there's an actual attempt to get him to resign over this. And it wasn't as much the case when he was making decisions that killed grandma and grandpa. So he's just a, a disgusting Figure across the board. But the thing that should really be a wake up call for everybody watching this is just how much the media leaned into making him a hero. And they prioritized the narrative over reality. I mean, this idiot released a book as the pandemic was still raging. He released a book acting like we defeated it and he was the reason. You know? I mean, just absolutely absurd. So everybody should understand how terrible a politician he is, and also how there was a system that covered up for him every step of the way. Thankfully, the tides are turning because it was, just, it was just a little too much now with the Me Too stuff where you even have Democratic elites and some factions of the media turning on him. It's too little too late, but I guess you still have to say better late than never. But really, man, this should be a cautionary tale moving forward. Don't make heroes based on a narrative, if you're going to make heroes, which you probably shouldn't do, period, it should be based on the actual facts. And the facts never lined up to show that Andrew Cuomo was doing some sort of glorious job fighting COVID. He was just the beneficiary of being the governor of New York and having a media system that covered him early on when there was a void of leadership on COVID-19. His regular press conferences, people thought, oh, he seems like a smart guy and he seems like he's on top of it. It was all a show, man. It was all a show, and now you know that
3: for sure. Okay.
1: Bernie Sanders is uh, redeeming himself a little bit with this maneuver that he's about to do. This is interesting, and from The Hill, they say, Senate Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders says Democrats should ignore the recent ruling of the Senate parliamentarian and is vowing to force the Senate to vote this week on an amendment to set the federal minimum wage of $15 an hour. Sanders on Monday declared he would not back down on his signature wage initiative after Senate parliamentarian Elizabeth McDonough ruled last week that a provision setting the federal minimum wage of $15 an hour would not be eligible under special budget rules Democrats are using to avoid a filibuster while passing their coronavirus relief bill. Quote, my personal view is that the idea that we have a Senate staffer, a high-ranking staffer, deciding whether 30 million Americans get a pay raise or not is nonsensical. We have got to make that decision, not a staffer who's unelected. So my own view is that we should ignore the rulings, the decision of the parliamentarian, Sanders told reporters. Now, Elizabeth Warren has also joined him on this. That's positive. And I think there might be a handful of other Democratic senators who have joined him on this and said, yeah, I think we should ignore it. Um, There's an effort of over 20 members in the House of Representatives, the Justice Democrats and some others, who are – they wrote a formal letter urging Biden and Kamala to overrule the parliamentarian – um, AOC started a, a petition to say, this is bullshit, tell Kamala Harris we are overruling this parliamentarian. So in other words, we're actually seeing some life and some fight on the left. And allow me to say that the, the number of people who signed this petition to basically, say it with me, force the vote on the $15 minimum wage, imagine if you had that block of people on the left who were this committed on every one of our major issues. We would get a hell of a lot more done. But the fact of the matter is, you have to be willing to shoot the hostage. You have to be willing to shoot the hostage. So one of the problems is that Ro Khanna apparently said afterwards in some interview, he was like, well, if I'm forced to vote for the $1.9 trillion relief bill without the $15 minimum wage, I'll do it, but you know, I prefer we have the $15 minimum wage in there. No, Ro! No, no, no. You're a politician. You have to know how to play politics. You have to tell them, no, I'm not going to vote for it unless the $15 minimum wage is in there. So you're going to tank the whole shit if you leave it out. And you know what? I got 23 others with me who are going to do the same thing. None of us are going to vote for your $1.9 trillion relief bill if you don't put the $15 minimum wage in there. So now you have no choice. You've got to get the $15 minimum wage in there. And I'm not a genius or anything, but I do, I, I do know basic math, and there's how many, there were only two Democrats in the House that were against the $15 minimum wage, only two. In the Senate, there's one or two that are nominally against the $15 minimum wage, but may be able to be moved, Manchin and Cinema. So you, Joe Biden, can either try to convince 24 of us to vote for the package without the minimum wage increase in there, we're not gonna do it, we're gonna vote as a block, or you could try to convince the two in the Senate who are against the minimum wage to be for it. Again, I think convincing two people to vote for the $15 minimum wage is easier than convincing 24 or 23 to vote for a bill without it in there. You see what I'm saying? You need to give him the numbers that he has to do the least amount of work by forcing people to be for the $15 minimum wage. You understand? You understand? So, in other words, you have to leverage your vote. You have to say, no, I'm not going to fucking vote for this bill that doesn't have a $15 minimum wage. And put them in a position where they have no option but to put the $15 minimum wage in there. By the way, we might actually have the numbers if you force a vote on it. We might actually have the numbers. We definitely have the numbers in the House. It already passed in the House. And in the Senate, if, if it's, you're only two away, you can find a fucking way. Fuck, if you have to... Get Josh Hawley or some shit. Get one or two Republicans. You might actually be able to get a handful of Republicans on this. Find a fucking way. But you have to fight. Now, thankfully, they're showing some fight. And they want to force a vote on it. Wonderful. But don't stop unless you win. You have to not accept no for an answer. You need to outdo them politically. Because you know what? You have the bully pulpit. You have the American people on your side. One poll said 67% of the country is in favor of a $15 minimum wage. You have amazing numbers. If you have that on your side, use it. Use it, use it, use it, use it, use it. So they're showing a little bit of fight. You should be happy over that. But they shouldn't, they shouldn't accept no for an answer. They, sh- they shouldn't accept no for an answer. If they can't get this done, they truly are pathetic. They truly are pathetic. And if they don't get this done, it'll be because of the mindset where Ro admitted, yeah, I'll vote for it without the $15 minimum wage in there if I have to. You never say that up front. Ever. Ever. You're supposed to say the opposite to make them think they have no choice. We got to put it in there. We got to get Mansion. We have no choice or else the thing's not going to fucking pass. And everybody knows they need the $1.9 trillion bill to pass. So get to work, son. Get to work. So listen, I want to give credit where credit is due. But this, I mean, I don't understand how people can't digest this fundamental point, which is it's always better to play hardball and use the bully pulpit. It's always better. So the fact that forced the vote on Medicare for all became such a controversy and such a split on the left, it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. All we were asking for was the same kind of hardball and parliamentary tactics that they're close to using here they're a tick off but their hearts in the right place here this is what we want i would if i was in control i would try to force a vote on all of our fucking issues are you kidding me you want to know why because i actually believe in our platform and our ideology and even if we lose so what you come back you regroup you come back in a little bit and you vote again and then if you lose that one you regroup and you come back and you vote again and you don't stop fighting. You get people on the record. You hammer away. You hammer away. You should never run away. I mean, the polls are overwhelming on uh, raising the minimum wage, Medicare for all. All of our issues are fucking popular. Of course I want to get a vote on it, and of course I want to point out every single person who's not with us and make their life a living hell. You are protecting them by not having votes on these things. So yes, force the vote on Medicare for all, force the vote on $15 minimum wage, Forced to vote on all of our fucking issues. Of course, it'll only even if we lose, it only gets us closer to the end goal. There was a great um, conversation about voting rights for felons. Cory Bush proposed a bill trying to get voting rights for felons, and I think it's like half the Democrats voted for it, half the Democrats voted against it, and basically every Republican voted against it. Okay, now some people look at that and say, "Well, that was a giant failure." Why'd you even try? Now we know who stands where. And by the way, if you had taken this vote five years ago, you wouldn't get half the Democrats. So we are going to keep chipping away until you get to a point where you actually win. But at every step of the way, you should be in favor of measuring it by taking the vote, and you should be in favor of exerting political pressure on your issues. Okay, so that was the commentary around this. Hey, it's good. At least we got people on the record and we can move forward from here, knowing what we're up against. You know, politics is fluid. It's not stagnant. It's fluid. So you should always want to inject your main issues into the bloodstream of the body politic and hammer away. And uh, listen, they seem to get the logic on $15 minimum wage. Probably because we're closer to the actual finish line on $15 minimum wage. You know, there's a much better chance we'll get $15 minimum wage compared to Medicare for All. So they shied away from the Medicare for All fight, but there were only upsides to take on that fight, too. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's only upsides. The more we're talking about our issues, the better. That's across the board. So, anyway, they're showing a little bit of fight, but they, will, they should refine their message a little bit and let them know it's not negotiable. To say, oh, I'll vote for it even if it's not in there, that's the last thing you should do. But at least their heart's in the right place and they're getting better. Okay. All right, let me do one more then we'll take a break. So the geniuses over on MSNBC were having a conversation about the attempted insurrection on January 6th, um, or as I call it, the Diet Coup attempt. Uh, Obviously, they're disgusted by it, as pretty much all of us were, the overwhelming majority of us were. There's a guy on the panel here by the name of John Brennan. He's become a bit of a resistance hero. Um, John Brennan made a comment that went sort of viral. Let me show you that, and then we'll discuss
2: started with Kate, Katie Benner's great new reporting about the investigation into police officer. It renders, you know, at best hypocritical, at worst cynical and false, any notion that the Republicans care about the lives and the safety of law enforcement. Well, I must say, to Claire's point, I'm increasingly
4: embarrassed to be a white male these days. What <laughs> of what I see of my other white males saying, but it just shows that with with very few exceptions like Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, there are so few Republicans in Congress who value truth, honesty, and integrity, and so they'll continue to gaslight the country the way that Donald Trump did. And the fact that this has such security and safety implications for the American public and for the members of Congress, again, as Claire said, it is just a disgusting display of craven politics that really should have no place in the United States in 2021.
1: So uh, the part that went viral, of course, is at the beginning where he says, I'm increasingly embarrassed to be a white male these days because of things other white men say. That is so telling that he says that because this guy was the former director of the CIA. He oversaw torture, illegal unconstitutional torture, illegal surveillance, spying, and he oversaw the drone program, which killed 90% civilians. 90%. 90%. He didn't say, I'm embarrassed to be a former CIA director. I'm embarrassed for the tremendous amount of pain and suffering I inflicted on innocent civilians. He didn't say that. I feel embarrassed for violating people's civil liberties, spying on them, illegally and unconstitutionally. He didn't say that. I feel terrible about the torture that we did supposed to be off the table in a civilized society. I feel terrible about that. It was savage. It was barbaric. I feel terrible. He didn't say that. He said, I'm increasingly embarrassed to be a white male these days because of things other white men say. Why are you responsible for things other white men say? That makes absolutely no sense. Would you say to a black guy, hey, you're responsible for something that this other random black person who you don't know what they said. I'm lumping you together because you both you have black skin. That would be, what's the word I'm looking for here? Racist. That'd be a racist thing to say. That'd be incredibly racist. Lumping people together solely on the basis of the color of their skin. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't be allowed to do that, rightfully so, with any other group of people. Why would you do that? Why do you think that's okay? Why do you think this sectarian thinking is reasonable? But he does it for white men. So self-flagellating white guilt. That's what this is. And again, the... Former director of the CIA, he was involved in torture, surveillance, and the drone program, which killed 90% civilians. Doesn't feel bad about that. Doesn't feel bad about being a warmonger and a war criminal. Didn't mention that at all, but he feels bad. I'm, I'm increasingly embarrassed to be a white male because other white males have said things that are wrong or whatever or are conservative politically. Listen, I would much rather be somebody with terrible political opinions than be an actual war criminal, which is what John Brennan is. And then, of course, he had to slip in there. There There's so few on that side of the aisle that believe in truth, honor, and integrity. And who did he bring up? Liz Cheney. Another person who has never, ever, ever met a war she didn't like. So he's not embarrassed to be a warmonger. He's not embarrassed to be uh, a torturer. He's not embarrassed for the illegal spying. He's not embarrassed for the drone program. Not embarrassed for any of it. Is embarrassed to be a white male. So anyway, you can see what is fashionable among liberal elites. This is a new thing. Listen, it's not I'm not making it up. You guys are seeing it with your own two eyes. What's fashionable among liberal elites and democratic elites is lean in hard to identity politics. Lean in hard to sectarianism. And that makes them feel like they've outlefted people on the actual left. Hey, listen, I'm a neoliberal asshole corporatist warmonger, and I'm in favor of the status quo. I'm in favor of business as usual, but I say white people suck, and I'm, I don't hate gay people, so I'm to the left of you. Oh, it's the classic thing that uh, the Biden administration is doing. Let me put, let me put uh, you know... Uh, a transgender person here in my administration. Let me put a Native American person here in my administration. Let me, let me diversify everything in sight. But, but, don't ask me about my policy towards Venezuela, where I'm continuing Trump's policies. Don't ask me about uh, what I just did in Syria with the illegal bombing, which is illegal under U.S. law and international law. Don't ask me about my, you know, perpetuation of the status quo or my rampant corruption. Hey, my secretary of defense is black. Hello? Come to find out that that black secretary of defense took over a million dollars from Raytheon because he sat on Raytheon's board. Uh Uh-uh, if you're pointing that out, it's probably just because you hate black people and you're racist, not because you hate corruption. So they use identity as a shield to obfuscate from what they're really doing. They're trying to make you think I'm woke and I'm to the left of you because I'm talking about race and stuff, even though I'm a corporatist, neoliberal warmonger and war criminal. Ignore that part. But I, I said white men are bad, so don't you think I'm so left and woke? Pathetic. Pathetic. John Brennan should feel embarrassed because he's a torturer, illegal, spire, and overseer of the drone program. He's a war criminal. That's why you should feel embarrassed. It should have nothing to do with the color of your skin. Okay. All right, y'all. Let me take a break. Tell you a little bit about what we have to look forward to when when we come back. When we come back. When we come back. Bernie Sanders. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We already did that. Republican... Republicans are going even harder on the cancel culture beat, and then Alex Jones is sick of Daddy Trump. Stay right there, y'all. We'll be right back with that and much more. Welcome back to the show. Um, I got some more shit on cancel culture. I know. I know. It's enough already. (laughs) Here we go. Republicans in D.C. are certainly not hiding what their priorities are. Take a look at this. Breaking. This is from the House Judiciary GOP. Ranking member Jim Jordan calls on Representative Jerry Nadler to hold first full committee hearing on cancel culture. Okay. I'm one of the people on the left who does get annoyed from time to time with the overreaching and the creeping authoritarianism on social issues. I do. It is something that I've talked about before, but the, idea, the the concept of cancel culture has now become so amorphous that it has no real meaning. So the things that I talk about when I talk about it are free speech issues, like, for example, when you have some speaker get canceled at a college because some people don't want that speaker to be there, and so they end the talk or they protest or whatever— Yes, I think that goes too far, and that's not okay. But cancel culture has now morphed into anything I don't like is cancel culture, even to the point where if there's just, like, debate and disagreement and somebody disagrees with you, I've seen people go, I'm being canceled. And it's like, no, you just said something stupid, and somebody's responding to it. That's not cancel culture at all. Also, I just hate the term cancel culture. It sounds so – it's just so obnoxious sounding. But anyway – The more important point is this. This has absolutely Dickie McGee's acts to do with the U.S. government. I'm sorry, it has nothing to do with the government. This is a societal thing. But we have the First Amendment of the Constitution, which gives us free speech and makes it so that the government can't lock you up for saying stuff, although talk to Edward Snowden and Julian Assange about that. They were first in line to be canceled unfairly, okay? But generally speaking, outside of Edward Snowden and Julian Assange and, like, protecting whistleblowers, outside of that, this is an issue that's a a societal issue. It has nothing to do with the government. So why do you want to hold hearings over cancel culture? It's not like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ilhan Omar or Mark Pocan or Bernie Sanders proposed a bill saying... Let's officially rename Mr. Potato Head Potato Head to be more gender neutral. They didn't do that. It was the companies that did that. So why are you bringing this up at the governmental level? It makes no sense. It's not like Elizabeth Warren proposed a bill that said we need to get rid of the six Dr. Seuss books. They didn't do that. It was the company. It was Dr. Seuss Enterprises that decided they want to do that. So why are you holding government hearings on this? I'll tell you why they're holding government hearings on this, or why they want to. Because this is all Republicans have. If you haven't noticed yet, the entire legislative agenda of the Republican Party is tax cuts for the wealthy and deregulation and more wars. If that's what you do substantively, nobody likes that. It's wildly unpopular. So if you're talking about what you're actually doing, you're going to tank in popularity. So what do they do? They lean into the culture war fight and then dupe people into thinking, oh, they agree with me on the culture war stuff, so therefore they got to be good on the economic stuff too, right? Wrong, 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 wrong. Just because you know, Jim Jordan is in favor of continuing to call it Mr. Potato Head, And Jim Jordan wants all of the Dr. Seuss books to be sold. Just because he has that opinion does not mean he's going to raise the minimum wage or give you health care or get corruption out of the system. Now, by the way, I'm not saying the Democrats are going to do that. But what I am saying is the Republicans are playing a trick. This is a trick through and through. Don't take the culture war bait. This is the old what's the matter with Kansas argument and idea that Thomas Frank floated, which is, Republicans use social issues to gain your trust so they can keep stabbing you in the back when it comes to the class war and the economic war. And that's exactly what happened. In the past, it was gay rights issues. It was the Bible. It was evolution and creationism. It was those issues where you get social conservatives on your side and then they screw you economically. Politicians will screw you economically. Now it's more stuff like this. You know, it's well, my free speech is under attack, and, you know, people are getting deplatformed. By the way, I think that's a real issue. I'm not trying to, like, downplay. I think it's important. I think we should have free speech on the social media outlets as well and expand the First Amendment and treat it like public utilities. So I'm not downplaying the issue. But what I am saying is there's no reason for government hearings on it because it's not government policy. It's private companies and it's free individuals who are making these decisions. It's got nothing to do with the government. So why are you holding these hearings? Because they want to divert, deflect, and obfuscate and focus on this shit so you don't see what they're actually doing in terms of the economy and in terms of corruption. So anyway, that's where we are with this stuff. Don't get it twisted, man. It's just I've seen so many smart people get diverted and then die on the battlefield of the culture war. It's happened way too many times. You've got to be better than that. You've got to be smarter than that. I'm not saying don't have your own opinions on the culture war stuff. I have my own opinions on the culture war stuff. That's largely irrelevant. The way you build solidarity and the way you fix the system is to focus on the economic stuff, get more people on board with that agenda, and that's how you fix the country. And then everybody, there's always going to be disagreement when it comes to social issue stuff. Always, always, always. The thing that the government should be doing is making everybody's life better, creating a system that gives us a more just, equitable, fair floor so you have a shot at making it. So we set up a real meritocracy. We're not there yet. We're not even close to that. The government wants to keep screwing you as they pretend they're on your side because of Mr. Potato Head or Dr. Seuss. Okay, next. Next. I believe it's been a while since Alex Jones has been in the, in the show Secular Talk. Um, and that's a shame. That's a shame. I was one of a few people who said, you know what, maybe you keep him up on YouTube, you keep him up in all these different places. I mean, I get it. For those specific videos that, whatever, mentioned something about Sandy Hook and the families were involved and it led to harassment. Like, I get it. Are there some specific videos that there was a case to be removed because it was abusive or direct threats of violence. Sure. Sure. But overall, I was like mm, you should probably keep him up because this is a slippery slope. And also, a lot of the stuff he says is just standard, run-of-the-mill, dumb conservative stuff and makes no sense to pull him up based on that standard. You have to pull Steven Crowder and Ben Shapiro and everybody else too. And I just don't agree with deplatforming and, and censorship and things of that nature. So he hasn't made it to our show in a while but now he's in the show. Uh, I believe it was the Daily Beast that leaked this story, maybe in conjunction with the Southern Poverty Law Center. But in 2019, Alex Jones was doing an interview, and um, he seems like he's, he's on something here. I don't know if it's alcohol or cocaine or both or what have you. I'm not knocking him for that. God bless if you're having fun doing all that stuff. So that's not the point of this. The point is in vino veritas, and you're about to see a little bit of that veritas, son. Take a look. Whoa. Whoa. You know, listen, we covered, when Rush Limbaugh died, there was a a recommended video that popped up in my feed that I took a look at. It was an old 60 Minutes interview from the early 1990s. And in that interview, Rush Limbaugh admitted something that I thought was earth shattering. He basically said like, yeah, I'm doing it for the money. I'm doing this for the money. And he said it in very clear Terms. There was no ambiguity. It was not up in the air. There was no reading between the lines or interpretation that had to be done. He said it. He said, yeah, I'm doing it for the money. I want to charge confiscatory ad rates because, and hold an audience's attention as long as possible. I'm doing it for the money. Now, when he says that, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is very straightforward. You don't know what he believes and what he doesn't believe. Is he always saying stuff he believes? Well, no, he said he's doing it for the money. So he's not always saying stuff he believes. He's putting first and foremost holding the attention of the audience, shaking down the advertisers, and making money. So maybe he says some things that are way out of bounds and not what he actually believes because he's trying to keep those eyeballs on him and cares about the Benjamins. And I felt silly because, and maybe this is me being naive in general, but I'm one of the people who I always default to believing that people are saying what they really believe unless there's overwhelming evidence to the contrary. So in other words, I never assume maliciousness, lying, malintent. I assume that whatever somebody's telling me, they're they're talking in good faith and telling me what they believe in good faith. And that's my operating assumption unless and until it's, you know, overturned by evidence or proof, okay? Now some would say that's naive because I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt up front always and it was silly of me to look at Rush Limbaugh and think like, yeah, I bet this guy believes everything he's saying. No, turns out he doesn't. In fact, maybe he didn't believe most of it. We'll never know. We'll never know. So he was an actor. He was an entertainer, first and foremost. He wasn't an ideologue. He wasn't a conservative icon. He was an entertainer. Now we're watching this clip from Alex Jones. I'm getting those same vibes, dog. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's a little more... There's a little more ambiguity here, but listen, he said the selfish part of me wishes I never met Donald Trump and Roger Stone. Uh, Then he said he felt responsible for basically helping bring Trump into office. And then he says, he basically breaks down. He's like, I wish I never would have fucking met Trump. I'm sick of him. I'm so sick of him. Well, why would you be sick of him if you're so on board for the MAGA agenda? You're so with Trumpism ideologically how could you get sick of him? Why would you get sick of him? Maybe he's not really thinking first and foremost about Trumpism and the ideology and the policies that Trump's putting in place. Maybe it was sort of like trying to gain more fame, name recognition, money, status, whatever it may be. And listen, it's, with Alex Jones, think about it he was a big opponent of the Bush administration and their policies. Donald Trump, even though, you know, he attacks the Bush legacy, he's just a continuation of the Bush policies. What what did he actually do in office? Tax cuts for the rich, deregulation, and continued the wars. That's Bushism. That's a continuation of the George W. Bush legacy. So if Alex was opposed to George W. Bush, And Trump is just continuing the Bush legacy, and he says he likes Trump. How can you like Trump? Well, again, maybe it's not ideological. And maybe this is Alex Jones totally fed up and tired from constantly playing defense. Alex Jones was the conspiracy guy, but he fancied himself an outsider. With Trump, when Trump got in power, he no longer even portrayed himself as an outsider. With Trump in power... All of a sudden, a lot of his stuff became standard right-wing talk radio garbage because if you're defending the president, the most powerful person on earth, you're by definition not really an outsider anymore. You're going to bat for the establishment. And so I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to get, to the extent that Alex Jones has coherent thoughts, it would be interesting to see what he believes about Trump's time in office, how he views himself in relation to it, because I can't imagine he likes the fact that he just became a cheerleader for the president, because then he loses his outsider credibility. But he probably viewed it as an opportunity to get more eyeballs on him, to make more money, to gain more status. But for whatever reason, he ain't too happy with it at the moment. I wish I never would have met Trump. I'm so sick of him. I I would like for him to expound on that. Tell me more. Why? Why are you sick of him? Is it just that he dominated the news cycle for four years straight, maybe more? Is it that he's overshadowing you in a way? Is it that now you feel responsible for every single fucking thing he's done, where you you feel like you're obligated to defend the stuff, even the stuff that you might not really believe? I don't know. I would be curious to hear more on that, but unfortunately it seemed like this clip was an aside for a much longer piece where he was trying to be more Alex Jones on message, but I'll tell you what, that's got to piss off at least half of his audience, right? Because his audience did become a lot of very very aggressive pro-Trump people. So if they're hearing him say this, okay, who are you going to line up behind? Is it Alex Jones or is it Donald Trump? Battle of the colossal egos and to see who breaks in what direction. But yeah, listen, it does look to me like there's a little bit of a, you know, the sense of, it was a calculation to line up behind Trump. And at at times, at least, he doesn't like the decision he made. At times, it looks like, there's a great example of it here. He says, I wish I never would have met Trump. I'm so sick of him. At times, it, it appears like, he wish he never hitched his wagon to Trump, and that ship did sink. I mean, he lost in 2024 in uh, 2020. Maybe he runs again in 2024, but who knows? Um, but I guess Alex sort of blew the outsider credibility to snuggle up to Trump, and now there are consequences for that. But anyway, also he seems like he's just on some sort of substances, and I hope he gets help, and I hope he's okay. Okay. Next. Let's talk about the Republican plans for the White House. Actually, no. Let me Let me give you the breaking news that we just got. So we just got a little bit of breaking news as I'm talking to you right now. By the time you see this, it's not breaking news, but as I'm talking to you, it is breaking news. The Senate is going to narrow eligibility for stimulus checks under a deal between the right wing Democrats and Biden. So now single people under $75,000 get the full $1,400 benefit, but it zeroes out at $80,000, not $100,000. So they're means testing it even more and excluding more people. Couples under one hundred and fifty thousand get the full amount, but it zeros out at one hundred and sixty thousand, not two hundred thousand. So again, they're they're doing more means testing and limiting the number of people who are going to get the full benefit. That's what this is. So understand the negotiations going on behind the scenes are not about the fifteen dollar minimum wage or about some sort of policy that's overwhelmingly popular. The negotiations going on behind the scenes are, how can we make this thing worse? How can we give it to fewer people? Why on earth are you having these conversations? Why is it that the backroom deals that happen in Washington DC are never what's best for the people? It's always figuring out how to weasel your way out of taking care of more people. This should really piss everybody off. What do you gain out of this? It's honestly like the Democrats are trying to lose in 2022 and 2024. I mean, the number of disappointments since Biden got in there, they ran saying $2,000 checks immediately when we get elected, within the first week or so. You know, Biden was saying it. The two new Democratic senators from Georgia were saying it. Then he gets in there. They didn't do it they didn't do $2,000 checks. They immediately started weaseling their way out of it. And they said, did we say $2,000 checks? Well, we met with 2,000 total, meaning you already got 600. So now it's only 1,400. You think people aren't taking note of this? You think people don't recognize how weasely you're being? And then all this time, you're dragging your feet more and more and more. Now, When I look at that, I think, oh, if anything, you should give people more money because the help didn't go out the door immediately. So now people need more help because time is adding up. What do they do? The exact opposite. Let's means test it more. Let's limit the amount of help even more. Who are you representing? I know who they're representing. They're certainly not representing the people. These so-called moderate Democrats are just corporate sellouts. And all they really care about, the the only contingency they really care about representing is their corporate donors and the wealthy. That's why they so easily and nonchalantly decide, yeah, let's limit even more the help that goes out the door. So it's like they're trying to be more and more unpopular. There's a 2019 poll on the $15 minimum wage. It's like 67% favorability. And they're just casually leaving it off the table, even though they have the ability to put it in, and they're hiding behind procedure and saying, oh, the big bad parliamentarian made it so I can't put it in. You can overrule the parliamentarian. The Republicans do that all all the time. Just put the $15 minimum wage in there. So they're excluding the $15 minimum wage, and now you're means testing even further? The already weakened, watered-down $1,400 check? It's pathetic. It's beyond pathetic. For the love of God, do the shit that you said you were going to do. Do the $15 minimum wage. Do the $2,000 checks. Only the Democrats can find a way to make, we're going to give you money, a losing issue by being so weaselly and watering it down and then watering it down again. Jesus Christ, it's so pathetic. This appeals to nobody, to nobody. And for whatever reason in D.C., they believe, oh, negotiations and bipartisanship are always by definition a good thing. By the way, they're going to weaken it and they're not going to gain a single new Republican vote. You know how many Republicans, after all the talk, after all the talk and all this time where Biden wanted to make it a bipartisan thing, how many Republicans voted for the House version of the $1.9 trillion relief bill? Zero. 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 So why are you weakening it? If anything, what should be done is Biden and Kamala should start fighting their own party for it. Let them know, I got carrots and sticks, son. What do you want? What do you want? You want me to be your best friend or you want me to be your worst enemy? I don't know if you've seen, I got a 62% approval rating. You want to take on this fight with me? I'd go in the other direction if they dared said, let's means test it more. i said, really? Well, we just, the checks just got $600 bigger. Now it is $2,000. They never move more in the direction of the people. And they never fight for the right. They always do the opposite always weaken it, water it down. Well, we had to do it, and the thing with the sun was in my eyes and the parliamentarian and the other excuses and whatnot. He's virtually guaranteeing that his approval rating goes down now over time. If you delivered on big-ticket items that you promised, then your approval rating would stay the same or go up. Squandering it all, squandering it all, squandering it all. FDR's rolling over in his grave You guys campaigned on a $15 minimum wage, and now you're immediately abandoning it. You campaigned on the $2,000 checks, and then it gets weakened, and then weakened again, and then weakened again. What do you expect to happen? What do you expect to happen? Of course people are going to run away from you at 1,000 miles an hour. Of course. It doesn't even matter that the Republicans have zero ideas on their own. Zero. They'll never learn. They never learn because they don't want to learn because the first thing in their mind is not, how do I help my constituents? That's not the first thing in their mind. See, that's the problem is we all look at it through that perspective of like, well, this of course makes no sense because you're supposed to help your constituents. and Now you're hurting your constituents more. Why would you do that? Because that's not how they're thinking of it. That's not how they're thinking of it. It never was. It never was. There's always consideration about the donors. There's always consideration about getting the Republicans who they're not going to get anyway. Zero votes in the House will probably be zero votes in the Senate. And they're just turning to their, instead of looking at the right-wing Democrats like Manchin and Cinema in the caucus and saying, we're going to make you heal, you're going to vote for what we want you to vote for, they always bend the knee to them. Well, I got news for all of the lawmakers on the left. You need to start exerting power like that. All of the lawmakers on the left need to start exerting power like that. You need to be the ones going out there saying, I'm not going to vote for your shitty $1.9 trillion bill if you don't put the minimum wage increase in there. I'm not going to vote for it if you means test it even more and reduce it even more. In the same way that they flex power, it's time for you to flex power, power, and you need to be willing to shoot the hostage. That's the only way we're going to win. You're not going to rely on the, on the intelligence or strategy or good graces of fucking Biden and Kamala Harris. It's not going to happen. So you have to start fighting. But here we are. This is unacceptable. Every day we wake up, somehow the bill manages to get worse and worse and worse, and not only is it bad from a policy perspective, it's getting worse from a politics perspective. It's like they're trying to squander all the goodwill and and the fact that they won, they're squandering it all. Because they're going back on the very basic things they said, $2,000 checks, $15 minimum wage. Already, both of those are gone. Beyond unacceptable, and I think that's clear.
3: Okay, next.
1: Elizabeth Warren reintroduced what's called an ultra-millionaire's tax. It's basically a wealth tax. Um, I'm going to talk about the, the thresholds, the lines for this wealth tax in just a little bit. But Sean Hannity went on his radio show and decided to talk about this, and boy, did I get a kick out of this.
4: So it may sound great to a lot of Americans the idea that Elizabeth Warren is now proposing a wealth tax, which probably means that Joe Biden will do it because he's now basically taking dictation from everybody in the Democratic Party. All right, wealth tax, 2%. Net value of assets of the wealthiest people in America. Uh, we build the future for all of our kids by investing, taxing, in opportunity. She said, be, "You know, contending that the small tax would generate at least three trillion dollars." Now, if you're not going to be subject to that tax, you're probably saying, "Great." Here's the problem. You know, all these people that are leaving, and all these companies that are leaving New York post-pandemic, post the billion-dollar cut to the NYPD. Uh, All these people leaving, you know, the 13.5% state income tax in California, the 10% tax in New York. Um, Yeah, why are all those people moving to Texas and Tennessee and red states and Florida and the Carolinas and everywhere in between? They're moving to get the hell out to save more money. It's an insane conversation I have every year with my, my financial advisors. So whatever you do, Hannity, don't die in New York. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll try not to die in New York. I'm going to try really hard this year not to die in New York, as if I know the day that God's going to call me home. And so, okay, why? Because New York, now, money that's already been taxed my whole life, and believe me, I pay everything. I have to. (laughs) I guarantee it gets pulled without even, there's no doubt every tax return gets pulled. And, and the good thing is a lot of it's W-2'd anyway, so it's not a big deal. But they pull it out, and I just – I always say just pay it, just pay it, pay it, pay it, pay it. That's my constant refrain. And so what's going to happen when, when people leave those states? Now, if, they, if Elizabeth Warren does this in the country, do you not think that the people that got rich, most of which got rich by not being stupid – and working hard. I I don't know many people that were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. I just don't know that crowd. I, I didn't grow up with that crowd. So I'm just I'm looking at this and they they think it's great. The bill's going to be dubbed the Ultra Millionaire Tax Act. Okay. Lately, what, what is happening that nobody's paying attention to? People are leaving the country. They are giving up their citizenship
1: few points. Number one, that's actually not at all guaranteed that that's going to happen. He was bringing up the example of states. So, yes, it's easier to go from one state to another state if you feel like, you know, you don't like the laws in certain states. But when you do it in the entire United States of America, there's plenty of people who are culturally attached to this country and love this country and wouldn't leave the country if they have to pay a slightly higher tax. Would some do it? Maybe some, but... don't care somebody's going to fill that void to the extent there even is a void and we'll take the place i mean it's pretty big thing to just give up on you know the united states of america simply because you don't want to pay a little bit more in taxes so the state-by-state comparison to the whole country comparison is actually terrible because you know i I see the logic when it comes to a a state-by-state comparison but when it comes to the country it's a lot harder for people to just up and leave Okay. But again, will some do that? Maybe some, but I would bet certainly not the majority. And those who do it, I don't care. I don't care. And by the way, he sort of actually proves our point in the segment, because when he talks about his own taxes, what does he say? He lives in New York, he pays the high taxes, and he says, just pay it. That's what I always say. That's my constant refrain. Quote, just pay it, just pay it. Most of the uber wealthy people would say, just pay it. But listen, this is not we're I'm burying the lead here because you know who this applies to this ultra millionaires tax it applies to people with a net worth of 50 million dollars or more 50 million dollars or more he's talking about like this is gonna affect your average Joe and Jane that's nonsense by the way notice he doesn't tell you who it applies to he doesn't tell you the threshold he doesn't tell you the number I wonder why he's not telling you the number He's not telling you the number because he knows that if he brings it up, everybody in the audience will be like, "I don't know, man, that actually seems kind of reasonable to me." A 2% wealth tax if you have a net worth of 50 million or over? That by the way, that polls phenomenally high. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's over 80%. It's definitely over 70%. So, uh, and just so you know, you know what you need as a net worth to be in the top 1%? 4.4 million dollars. $50 million net worth is like a fraction of a percent. It's the very top people. And he's going to bat for them. He's going to bat for them to protect them from a 2% tax on wealth over $50 million. I mean, it's honestly, it's, it's ridiculous. And it raises $3 trillion. You know what you could do with that $3 trillion? You could do a lot with that $3 trillion. You could do a lot with that money. You give people UBI. You give people health care. You give people college. You help. You could pay off student loan debt almost twice, two times over. Um, The argument he's making reminds me of the argument that was made when they did the original Wall Street bailout during the subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. The argument from Washington was, hey, we have to do it. We don't have a choice, because if we don't do it, these companies can't retain the talent. Think about how ridiculous that is. These are the same executives that just made the decisions that crashed their respective companies and tanked the global economy. And now the argument's being made, we need to reward them for that and bail them out because we need to keep the talent. Maybe they're not so talented. Maybe they're not so talented. By the way, it's also the case already that the wealthy pay a lower effective tax rate than the average American family because they have all their loopholes and their deductions and their workarounds. So really what we're talking about here, it is... True, that we're just talking about getting them to pay their fair share. And he brings up, oh, all the rich people are from hard work. No. In fact, 40% of the wealth of the rich is inherited. 40%. That's a huge number. So it isn't like they're all just the hardest working and we have a meritocracy. He would like to think that's the case because he's wealthy. But no, unfortunately, that's not the way it works. We don't have a meritocracy. So, I mean, it says a lot about Sean Hannity that this is how he spends his time. Let me argue in favor of the people who have a $50 million net worth or above. Let me protect them from a wealth tax and not tell people the actual number it applies to, because then that would make my argument look bad. And also he contradicts his own argument by saying, "Oh, all these people will leave if you do this tax. Meanwhile, he says that he says it in New York, I hey, just pay it. Will some leave? Yes, a small number. Negligible. 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 Most of them will pay it. A handful won't. But the amount of money that we raise would be phenomenal. And what we could do with that money, you know, it's endless. You can do a number of amazing things with that money. But don't buy this nonsense that billionaires and the uber wealthy get to hold you hostage, uh, you know, and, and dictate public policy forcefully. You know, it, that's the problem in this system: is that the billionaires and the corporations they've bought the system. And so they rigged the rules in their favor. All we're talking about here is unrigging the rules. Again, they already pay a lower tax rate than the average American family. Why is that allowed? And even if you were to say to Sean, hey, at least make them pay the same, he'd be like, no, can't raise taxes on any of them at all. Because he's a hack. He's a total corporate hack. And really pathetic. He's, he's one of the worst. But anyway, um, there you have it. This is how he spends his time, defending people who have a net worth of $50 million or over, and protecting them from a 2% wealth tax. Okay, next. I got one more from Hannity. Sean Hannity on his radio show uh, pretended like he's. uh, I know what it's like to be a working man and have calluses on my hands and whatnot. Look at the argument he makes.
4: I know what it's like to struggle not to be able to come up with the rent money. I know what it's like to struggle to live paycheck to paycheck. I know I've lived that life and it's not pleasant, and then the idea that somebody's going to come along and take all that stress and all the, the worry about wh- whether you can afford to send your kids to college, whether you'll have enough money for retirement, uh, whether you're going to have a, a guaranteed government neighborhood house, I don't know what else they're promising. So the problem with all of this is it destroys human initiative. It destroys it. It also goes contrary to what our entire governmental belief system is, which is based on natural rights from, quote, the thing, God, the creator of everything, and that the belief that I have firmly in my heart that God created every man, woman, and child, and that within each individual there are talents and abilities, and the natural stress, not unnatural stress... That of survival brings out of you a desire and a and a a certain discipline and responsibility that you got to get your ass out of bed and you got to go out and produce goods and services that people want, need and desire, and you got to work and you got to live within your means. You got to try and save money. All these things come into play.
1: You know this conversation is so dumb, and um, it's a common debate that we hear among the left and the right and he's just talking over our heads that's what he's doing because when you're talking about universal health care universal education including higher education college um when you talk about a universal basic income like his argument is oh you're giving people everything and it quote destroys human initiative that's not true because what we're talking about is setting a reasonable floor that's the real conversation that's the point of social democracy is you don't really have a, a a chance at success if you don't have a roof over your head and some food in your stomach you need to there's a certain baseline level that needs to be met in order for you to even have a, a fighting chance to be successful, to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be able to work. And what they do is they pretend like the conversation about where the floor should be set is inherently stupid because it's everything is a giveaway. I mean, fuck, you want to take his arguments as the logical conclusion? It's like, what if the second a baby was born, you put the baby outside and tell him, hey, if you're all on your own doesn't make much sense right because baby's incapable at this point of doing the things that an adult can do fact of the matter is yeah you have to raise raise the kid but there are certain things that should be off the table food drink uh you know a shelter that's reasonable in the sense it's not too hot and not freezing um and then listen when you get older it doesn't seep your initiative to have these basics met. And we know that because the Scandinavian countries exist. You know, the fact that they have, you know, in many of the Scandinavian countries, not only free healthcare but also free higher education, has that made it so that you have, whatever, a 70% unemployment rate because nobody even wants to work, bro? No, of course not. Alaska has a version of UBI. It's not like people in Alaska are more lazy or some shit. Of course not. So it's just, it's not true. These arguments are not true. Is it possible that you can set up a society where you do give people too much and the floor is too comfortable and then that takes away human initiative? That's possible. I mean, that's, that's possible. I could see that theoretically happening. know, you'd have to test it and see how far you go and where's the line and what would be too much. But certainly where we're at right now is nowhere near that point. And he acts like we already live in a meritocracy and you just work and then you'll get to where you have to go. That's utter nonsense. You have people in this country who work full time and don't make enough money to survive. The minimum wage is not a living wage. So you can work all the time and still live under the poverty line? That makes absolutely no sense. That makes no sense at all. So when you talk about free health care, free college, very basic things, a universal basic income. I mean, we have social security in this country, where if you're over a certain age, you basically get income, guaranteed income. Is that seeping the initiative of these people? No. We've collectively decided as a society that older people deserve a certain baseline of security. I think that's reasonable. i go a step further. I think maybe everybody deserves that. You know? And I don't think it'll necessarily take initiative away, maybe for a tiny number of people it will. But overall, like I said, Alaska has UBI. They're doing fine. You know, there's plenty of countries that have universal health care. They're doing fine. Australia has universal health care, and they have a minimum wage that's effectively around 15 US dollars an hour. Their unemployment rate's the exact same as ours. So it really doesn't take initiative away. That's bullshit. See, what he's doing is propaganda. He's trying to say you don't deserve even the bare minimum. Why? Because Sean Hannity's representing the billionaire class and the corporations, and the corporations don't want to pay a living wage. You know, and the private health insurance companies don't want us to have Medicare for all because then they all go out of business. So that's who he's representing. He's just a corporate hack. And he, he dresses up these arguments as if, you know, he's pro-work and pro-responsibility when really he's in favor of a system that perpetually fucks you, even if you're trying hard. Nobody's against trying. Nobody's against working your way up. But the question is, we should start this race This 100-yard dash where we're all at the zero-yard line, shoot the gun in the air, and then everybody runs. What we have now is a system where some people are born at the 90-yard line of the 100-yard dash, and they get to go. And some people are brought back 1,000 yards behind the finish line, and they're told, okay, you run, and this is an equal and fair race. No, it's not. The, the rules of the competition need to be just and fair and reasonable. And what he's doing is, unfortunately, arguing for a status quo that is completely unjust and unfair and unreasonable. So don't fall for this nonsense. People on the left are just trying to give people a shot, a chance, not cradle to grave, everything's taken care of. It's not too much to ask to, to have what every other developed country has as the starting point. All right, y'all, final story
0: of the Dizay.
1: The Biden administration was asked about Mohammed bin Salman and their lack of any sort of punishment over the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Here's what happened.
3: Russia right now. So if you
4: don't do anything that directly touch and touches MBS or Vladimir Putin, why do you expect those leaders
3: to stop this behavior?
2: Well, again, Peter, with all due respect, uh, this, these decisions were made on the basis of decades of experience uh, and consideration by our national security team. on what would be most effective in not only deterring uh, actions like this in the future, preventing this from ever happening again, which is, of course, our objective, but also uh, being able to maintain uh, a a relationship moving forward. And, of course, we have important work we do with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, from intelligence sharing uh, to deterring uh, the actions of militants in the region. uh, And those are in uh, in the national interest of the United States.
1: See, now this is wild to me, because Trump didn't do anything to punish Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, murdering a journalist who was critical of them. Trump didn't do anything. In fact, he went the other direction. He gave him like a bigger weapons deal. Um, and he even said, uh, no, I'm not going to punish them. They buy our weapons. So let's have, we'll get an even greater deal now. They feel bad, so they'll Buy even more weapons from us, and that's good for our economy. That was Trump. Biden is not doing anything either. He's not doing anything. And then they have the nerve to say, oh, we need to do what's in the best interest um, for us moving forward. Listen, the best interest is you have to sanction him specifically, directly. You have to do something to deter this, because you know what? If you do nothing to deter this, what message does that send to the world? It sends a message, if you're a U.S. ally and there's some critical journalists that you don't like that are calling you out and exposing you, you can just murder them. You can just murder a journalist and the U.S. isn't going to do anything in response. There's no retaliation. There's no punishment. And so this incentivizes authoritarian governments to kill journalists willy-nilly. It absolutely does. You know, so, fuck. I mean, everybody who's really, really critical of Saudi Arabia, they 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 just proved they will kill somebody who's hypercritical of Saudi Arabia. And then they got away with it. So, how do we know they're not going to kill other people? I've been fiercely critical of them. How do I know if I'm traveling somewhere in some region that they wouldn't just kill me because they don't like what I say about them? You know, how do we know? Because there's no punishment. There's no retaliation. And then they have the nerve to say, well, I mean, it's really important that basically we don't punish them because we do intelligence sharing. Oh, and we, need, we work with them to, quote, deter militants in the region. That should really get under your skin because it's the exact opposite. We work with them, and they give money and weapons to militants. It's the exact opposite. I mean, they're the ones who were funding and arming jihadists on the ground in Yemen. They're the ones who were funding and arming jihadists on the ground in Syria. Literally, al-Qaeda on the ground in Yemen to fight the Shia Houthi rebels. So we're not working with them to deter militants. We're working with them to arm and fund militants but we just call these militants our allies because they're Saudi Arabia's buddy. Just because they're friends with Saudi Arabia does not mean that they're not a menace, in many instances, terrorists. And by the way, there was speculation, Aaron Maté pointed this out, when Joe Biden bombed Shia militants uh, in Syria. That happened immediately after the U.S. released the report that said Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. His speculation is, when that report was released, Mohammed bin Salman was pissed off. And so Biden, as a token gesture of, hey, we're still good, man, it's all good, he bombed some of the people that MBS wanted bombed, namely the Shia militants on the ground in Syria. So that was a token gesture of like, hey, I know you're mad we released this report, but we're still boys, and I still got your back, and the Saudi-U.S. alliance is still, we're still tight really, really unacceptable. And the precedent that this sets is disturbing. You just told Saudi Arabia you could murder journalists, including U.S. journalists, and just get away with it. You can just get away with it. So do we really have freedom of speech and freedom of the press in a situation like that, when you have Edward Snowden and Julian Assange who are being persecuted relentlessly, and now you have a situation where some of our top allies can just murder journalists and get away with it? This is a a direct assault on the Constitution, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, globally. It's a terrifying thing, man. The idea that you can't be extra critical of authoritarian leaders because they might murder you and nothing will happen in response, that's pathetic. And that shows you the United States government puts business interests above all else. That's what it is. Puts business interests above everything else. Because, yeah, a lot of it, I'm sure, has to do with the fact that they buy so many of our weapons. So the military-industrial complex loves Saudi Arabia, regardless of how terrible they are with their human rights violations. Totally, totally unacceptable, man. It's wild that we're even at this position, and we need to have this conversation. All right, guys. I am done, y'all. Love y'all very much. You need to check out Dr. Carl Hart on Crystal Kyle and Friends Friday night. Watch the video Friday night. I'm going to talk to him about drugs. He's, he's an expert on drugs. I'm going to tell him the drugs I've done in my life, how they made me feel, which ones were good, which ones I didn't like. We'll have a conversation about all that. You know, There's a lot to get into with Carl Hart, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. Go subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack and watch the video. And if not, hang on one more day Saturday and listen to the audio for free. But it's going to be a fun conversation and you don't want to miss it. Anyway, love you guys and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.